welcome to You're On Mute, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Bianca Miller-Cole, and sharing some good news. I'm pleased to announce BBI now has a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself, Lord Michael Hastings, Eunice Olamide, and fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers. Lifting the mute button, we learn about life's journey, how they got their big break, and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd, Chris Caber, and similar instances has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limiting aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation, and preventing deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized counterproductive for society at large. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guest's favourite piece of music, signalling different stages of their life. So joining me today is Amanda Rajkumar, Executive Board Member, Global Human Resources, People and Culture at Adidas. And today we're going to be looking at Adidas, the new agenda. Hello, Amanda, and welcome. Hello. Lovely to be here. Good. No, thank you very much for taking your time out of your busy schedule. So first and foremost, tell me about your first track. You have chosen Jimmy Cliff's 1969, Many Rivers to Cross, a real classic. Why have you chosen that one? It's a beautiful, a beautiful um, melody, firstly. It's a song that um, I grew up with. Um, I grew up in the um, in the early 70s. I think this song came out um, uh, in 1969. And it, the song is really interesting because it's about Jimmy Cliff as a musician, not doing very well as a musician and not being able to get the big deal. And, uh, and he'd already come to England. And like many people from the Caribbean, they had immigrated to the, the great Commonwealth and, and, uh, and to the, the centre of the Commonwealth, which was the UK. And, and England. And uh, that was the story of my parents. So this song had a meaning for us as a family. Um, my, my father came from St. Vincent in the Caribbean and my mom came from uh, Trinidad. And, and of course, this is the, the home of uh, soca, uh, reggae and uh, and songs um, um, that Jimmy Cliff um, um, is famous for. So so yeah, it, it, it it's a song that I heard growing up. Um, it's a song um, that's kind of stayed with me throughout my life. Um, it's sung very beautifully. It has an amazing melody and harmony and uh, and there is something very spiritual about the song so um uh, I, I i love it and uh, I, I listen to it even as 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 as, uh, as recently as last weekend amazing i can just see from your face that it evokes so many amazing memories i love that um, so let's talk about the foundation tell me a little bit about mum, dad or sister and family life in general growing up Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, 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 uh, my parents um, uh, moved to, to when they came over. Uh, my mom went to be a nurse. My dad went to be an engineer. And they met uh, fairly quickly, and they uh, they decided to move to Northampton, which is my hometown in in the middle of uh, the UK, Midlands as we call it. My sister and I were born there, and uh, I think my my family unit was very close at that time. It was just the four of us, and it was just the four of us for a very very long time. Uh, you also have aunties who also lived in in the UK as well, and a lot of family in Highwicker 
income. And, and so we had a small extended family, I would say, of people that we met regularly, but really majority of our family was abroad. So it was just the four of us and we became a very tight unit. And I think my mom and dad, uh, they came to the UK, um, like many people did from the West Indies at the time, for a better life and to find opportunity and to do better than their parents' generation. And uh, I think my parents had the, the goal that my sister and I should be in, in a much more successful and potentially profitable uh, way of being from them. And so they really wanted us to be financially independent, emotionally independent, um, and very much really um, products of the British Empire in a way. So I would say that one of the things um, that I, when I look back at my childhood, my parents were very keen for us not to develop a West Indian accent, but us not to um, you know, speak patois and, and for us to absolutely speak the Queen's English. So, so we were kind of scolded if there was any kind of uh, discussion like that, um, even though it was something that we grew up in and was around us. So that was a little bit of it. And, and I think also our education was important to both my parents and uh, and they, they always knew education is, is the key to freedom. Um, and uh, and so for us, that was something that was very much indoctrinated into, into our upbringing. Yeah. And uh, you had the benefit of completing part of your education in private school. Um, that would have been maybe an unusual choice for a working class family. Did your parents ever share or discuss with you their motivations for that? I know you said oh. education was important. It was from day one. Um, it was you have to go for this. This has to be the uh, the pathway for you. It has to be university. It has to be a great job. So it was it was it was never no. You can go and be an actress. There was there was never any any doubt in in our minds. And and I think you know my my father worked extremely hard. He had his own company, and uh, and it really was about um, being able to provide education for us and and having an education that potentially gave us better access and more opportunity in a way. But, you know, it, you know, uh, Bianca, it doesn't come without uh, um, the ups and downs, you know, because uh, it was uh, certainly for my sister, who's uh, three years older than me, uh, she had a very tough time at school and she was the only diverse individual there. And uh, and I remember her vividly. It's, it's really it's really in, in here that, you know, she came home crying one day, really, and, and, and many days. And, uh, and, you know, there was some bullying going on and there was even a photograph taken. It was it was a Christmas um, festivity play where someone was pinching her underneath her leg and uh, and you can see the tears in her eyes and this is a picture that you know it burnt a hole in my heart it's something that I will never forget and I think you know it's something that even she still carries you know now you know it's something that you, you is really hard to get over it made me aware of that, that when I went to, it, it, to school, I was a little bit more, a different character, but also aware that I was different, um, made me a bit more overconfident, I would say. <laughs> and I found a way to be able to bring people with me. And even when I knew there was a lot of difference between us. So I, I wasn't always successful, but I certainly had a better time than my sister did at, 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 in those years. Do, do those years uh, remind you of kind of the, the little racial diversity in Northampton? Yeah, I mean, this used to be a situation where, you know, you go shopping with your mom on a Saturday to the the, the Grosvenor Centre, which is the big uh, the, the department uh, uh, mall there. And, uh, and you know, if you saw another Indian or black family, you, you would actually, like, be staring yourself because you're like, oh, wow, there's somebody else. And 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 quite often, my mom, who was the health visitor to those those children, so she always stopped to chat to all the different mums. And I remember, like, you know, like, always, oh, come on, mom, can we go now? And it was always a... But that was... The the reality, I would say that in Northampton, there was the multiculturalism, but it was very few and far between. And so you tended to know the other diverse families. Yes. Yeah. So who were your early role models at that stage? 
Well, I grew up in the Thatcher years, Bianca, and uh, and I have to say, um, I had a, a bit of a kind of a triple whammy because I had Margaret Thatcher was the, the the only prime minister I knew for many many years, and a formidable woman in 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 one way, in that she commanded a room of men. I mean, it, it was it was pretty amazing what she did. And whether you're on the left side or the right side, uh, that has to be some kudos to her for that. Um, and, and I think secondly, also her strength in her articulation of points and yet, but also a softness in some way. And so I, mm. I, that was something that was always going on in the back. Um, I think secondly, um, uh, I had a very, very uh, uh, tough headmistress um, and uh, she was certainly respected, um, sometimes questioned, but, but um, um, that was someone that was another very strong female that was um, that I respected a lot because I, I, I whilst while she was tough, she was very fair and taught me a lot actually um, about the wrong and right way to do things and particularly around studying and 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 progressing. Um, and then of course my mom because my mom um, uh, came to um, uh, to the UK. Uh, she was a nurse. Uh, then she became a health visitor. And my mom was working. She was a working mum. So that was um, also a positive thing to see. She would come back between clinics cook us a meal, then go back and, you know, say, make sure you wash up and give, make sure you give your dad something. And, you know, and, and that, that was our kind of life. It was very much like that. But weekends was really for us as a family. And uh, and I, I still find weekends very important to um, to bond with loved ones and, and to take the time out. So, so yeah, so that, that was the, I guess those are the three real local role models to me at that time. Yeah. I think that's amazing that you've chosen four, sorry, three strong women, you know, that that embody confidence, uh, being impactful, but also understanding how to kind of nurture their future and, and how to be proactive in changing the trajectory of women, right? And I think you've certainly done that in your career. Um, but tell me a little bit about your trips to London. I understand that impacted your horizons also. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my parents were big travellers and they loved taking us um, all over the world. And, you know, I, I think we'd seen all continents by the time I was um, probably, um, I think, 14, 15. But one of the um, things we do very regularly is my dad would just say on a Friday night, well, let's get in the car. We're going to go and stay in a hotel in London and um, and we're going to go and book up a show and we're going to see a show. So this is really where it started my love of, of, of what London was about. And suddenly my eyes were like peeling open wide because... Wow, there was just such um, diversity, um, ethnic diversity, but also mindset diversity in in, in a place like London, and and uh, you know going to Notting Hill Carnival or going up to South Hall or um, you know going going into um, Piccadilly Circus or Trafalgar Square to see those those places, and and really for me that was um, really exciting to uh, to to go and visit London, and it, it really planted a seed for me um, that. Northampton wasn't going to be the place I would stay my whole life. Um, I always knew that, I think, but but certainly it was it was the impetus for me to go to university and to, to move to a much more um, diverse city. At what age did you eventually leave the relative calm of Northampton to head for big smoky London? I went to university at 21. I went to um, Goldsmiths College, London University. And so it, it's my first experience away from home. Um, and uh, when I'd gone to do the um, the, the interviews and, uh, and and the look and see, I remember New Cross being um, just a phenomenal place. I mean, I was in the majority. I was not in the minority. And, uh, and when I'm talking about, you know, uh, the people who, who live there and it was Wow, this is this place is amazing, and you you'd go on the bus and you'd hear uh, beatboxes and and cars boom boom stereos, and it was pretty cool, huh? And uh, and people walking along the road and talking, it was just so vibrant, and and it it it, it very much um, 
it related to me because that's the kind of family I grew up in. The West Indies is like that. And uh, and so it was it for me, I was like, yeah, I, I feel at home here. And uh, and then when I eventually um, uh, went to Goldsmiths, it was a really important, I think, um, moment in my career and my and my life, because um, I started to see um, suddenly um, what it what it does feel like to to be in your own tribe and to have um, you know even my university student group and and colleagues was such a diverse group. I mean, it, we were doing psychology, um, a bachelor of science in psychology, but it was it was pretty much um, a completely mixed class, different ages, different backgrounds, different sexualities, different ethnic ethnicities, and and also experiences. A lot of mature people who've come back to to do different um, uh, you know to take on further studies. So I loved that, and we. We used to, we used to, we were a very tight knit group actually, and uh, and we still, I still keep in touch with some of the people I went to university with. Um, so it was, it was a phenomenal experience. And London itself, I mean, just an amazing city. Um, you know, I think it's nine million people with tourists. Um, you know, there's there's just not one boring moment in London. <laughs> Absolutely. And were you the first in your family to go to university? My sister and I were, were the first in, in our immediate family. My, my mother went to nursing college. My father went to yes. engineering college, but but not the universities uh, of the UK. Yeah. Gosh, they must have been so proud. Amazing. Um, okay, so moving us into section two then, challenges, development and growth. Your next track is Back to Life by Soul to Soul featuring Karen Wheeler. What made you choose that track? This was the sound of my um, university days and also my early career because it was, I mean, this song, Jazzy B, Karen Wheeler, it was the bomb. I mean, that song was number one for, I think it was like, feels like 20 weeks. And we'd heard nothing like this kind of music. I don't know about you, how you felt, Bianca, but that's when that song came on, I was like, whoa, 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 that is an amazing song. And uh, the beat, the words, and you know, the, the meaning of the song is still is still a little bit of a puzzle to me. I think it might be kind of a song about God, but it might also be a song about um, a relationship. It's hard to really know, but but the beat and and I remember feeling incredibly proud when that video came on and it was number one, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, I was just like, it was, it's it's just like that thing where you see, um, and you're growing up and you seldom see diversity on TV and you see Lenny Henry comes on and you're like, yeah, and the whole family are like silent watching and seeing how is it going to be? And and you, there is such a, an amazing, immense pride that comes out when you see something like a real pride. Um, and, uh, and I felt when this song came out, A, it was amazing. B, everyone had the album, white people, black people, Indian people, everyone had this album. Um, everyone was playing it in the hallways and, uh, and I, the song is just, uh, it represents a, a moment in time. I did happen to be a bit of a party animal as well in those days as well, <laughs> even into my first years of studying. And we used to go to the fridge a lot, uh, the fridge in Brixton. And that was once owned by Jazzy B. So, so the whole thing came round for me. And yeah, I still love that song today. <laughs> well, impeccable choices so far, even if I do say so myself, really enjoying those. <laughs> and that song brings back lots of amazing memories for me too. So yeah, no, really good choice. Um, so visiting uh, London is one thing, right? But living in a city is another. You mentioned a couple of key and iconic places in South London. But what are your early memories of living in South East London? 
great food, um, uh, you know, just uh, lots of places to go in the evenings. Um, you know, there was there was also a bit of a, a little bit of a, um, I would say, a small racial divide because um, there were a number of pubs in New Cross um, and uh, and also a very big venue, um, which was which was really frequented by I would say maybe I don't want to say mods, but but it was a bit like that. And uh, and then of course there were a number of you know venues which were much more multicultural, but there was something for everybody. And uh, and I think the vibrancy. The vibrancy of New Cross, because of this melting pot of different cultures, Africans, Nigerians, Guineans, Kenyans. And then you had, um, you know, obviously huge West Indian um, contingent as well. Um, a lot of Irish, a lot of British people. And uh, and also then you've got a lot of um, Eastern European eventually. But it was such a melting pot. And I, I just felt, wow, I love this. I love the different um, accents. I love the different I love going on the 36 bus. The 36B bus took me from, <laughs> from Lewisham up to New Cross every day to do my degree and uh, there was always a drama on that bus and I loved it and I felt I've arrived when I got on that bus I thought I arrived <laughs> hilarious it's funny the, the memories you have I bet you haven't been on a bus in a very long time but certainly <laughs> it's always good to look back <laughs> so unfortunately while you were living in southeast London uh, a killing took place that would have huge reverberations in the UK how did that impact you and your future choices yeah. So the murder of Stephen Lawrence was one that um, it's just poignant and uh, and something that was um, that that was that was so pivotal at that time because not only was I living um, not far from Eltham and this this area where um, it took place, but it happened overnight and then it was kind of news and then it was down and I heard about it, but it was, it was not being reported again in, in, in any of the press like it is today. We didn't have so much social media. And I remember that it took for the um, Reverend Al Sharpton to come from the U S to organize a march that started in, uh, in our college. And we marched to, for him to actually raise awareness of Stephen's death. And I had the privilege to interview um, Baroness Lawrence um, at the end of last year. And we had this really um, uh, uh, important conversation about you know, what we think has changed um, since that time um, and, and the progress that has been made. And I think certainly um, the way um, uh, the, the, the view was, the way the police had handled it at the time um, was certainly um, uh, not one that was was a positive uh, handling. And I think now, I think there's, there is, um, if we look at now the US um, and what's happened last year and the murder of George Floyd, you could take away bleak thoughts about, about the two, you know, so many years apart, yet the same kind of lack of faith in the system. Um, uh, you know, coming back. So, so, but it was it, it was a moment that made me realise that yeah, there's a lot of uh, multiculturalism here. Yes, you know, you've come from, you've come from this West Indian background that you know felt very welcome here in the UK over the years. But there's still a minority, maybe even a, a bigger than a minority, of people that don't accept. And uh, and that was a, 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 an eye opener for me. It was important for me to to see the effects that had on people as well. I remember I did have some friends from Eltham, some white friends from Eltham who said, "Well, that that that's not people in Eltham. That's not you know that's not us." And and I believed them. And then um, you know a lot of my um, uh, fellow colleagues who were um, coming from different um, um, ethnicities, feeling um, really angry and cheated by um, the police at the times. And I remember that injustice. I remember that was the thing that really got me the injustice, the fact that. This 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 young lad, you know, just murdered on the street, and then his 
killers getting away you know that that was that was the worst thing and that that was that feeling of um uh, a real dread about wow how how the pendulum can swing and 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 uh, and i think the, the the sense of inequity is something that really um um uh, sparked my interest and also my passion um in hr about making things fair and equitable um in organizations and and, and environments yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. And I think that brings us um, quite nicely on to your career. So tell me about your first job and the kind of cut and thrust of the corporate world. Well, my first job was was really not corporate. It was um, um, it was research psychology because after I left to do after I left uh, my psychology degree, I, I absolutely wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So I went into a research setting for a few years, but it was um, uh, not um, very progressive for me, and uh, and I found it. Um, uh, pretty tough. Uh, and also in those days, leaving university in uh, 1993, there was a little bit of a dip in the economy. So things were tough then, I would say. Um, and uh, I got into headhunting at a big headhunting firm um, as a researcher, a basement researcher. And in those days, no PCs, no, none <laughs> of the social media and the help you have now. Everything was done with directories, um, conference um, um, attendee lists, um, and little kind of little uh, cards that you put notes on, and a phone. And that was my job. I sat on a desk with a phone and some uh, directories, and I had to find out, research, map uh, corporates, organizations. And it was a, it was a tough start because you, you have to call and you have to find out things and use various uh, means to, to get the information you need. Um, sometimes some ethical, some not. Um, but uh, but um, it was the way it was done in those days. And um, it really was a good time because I learned about rejection. Um, even from um, doing a calls like that, you learn how to be charming, you learn how to get what you want, and you learn also to deal with how people, when they put the phone down, it's soul-destroying, it's soul destroying, but it builds up your character. So, so I only did that for a short period of time, but it was a very, very good, um, I think, experience to have. And then I moved um, into more mainstream recruitment, and then I went on-site at an investment bank in London as a um, technology recruiter. Yes, amazing. And you're right, that cold calling. I mean, that. The, if anyone has been through the cut and thrust of cold calling, yeah. that, that certainly builds some character in anyone. Um, okay, great. So your next role was in an important investment uh, bank, JP Morgan. Yeah. Obviously, you know, from a, a girl from Northampton, you know, maybe coming from a kind of working class background. Did you ever feel or were you ever concerned about that feeling of imposter syndrome? I think there's always that doubt in the back of your head and um, and particularly when something goes wrong in a presentation or you, you suddenly your doubt your, your self-doubt creeps in right you know wow who am I trying to kid I mean what's going on here but but I think it over the years I put that imposter at the back of the cupboard again um they're way, they're way back there now and they're hopefully never to come back out um but 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 it is it's much harder in your early career and especially when you're finding your feet um you're finding your own personal style you're you're learning on the job um you're building up your network it is it is really difficult and uh, and it is something i i uh, was asked this question by um, a group of um employees recently about you know do you do you do you sometimes have doubt and i say 
yeah, of course I do. Often I, I, I come out of a meeting and I think, what could I have done better? How could I have avoided that? What could? And I analyze and I think about it and, uh, and, uh, and I angst on it sometimes as well. I think this is natural. But at some point I say, okay, now move on. Let's just don't, let's not uh, make that mistake again. So I think it happens to all of us. But I think the important thing is how you deal with it then afterwards and to, and to make sure that imposter's at the back or out. Absolutely. So people on the outside of the investment banking world often have a perception of the hard drinking culture and lots of excess, especially around bonus time. Now, is that true? (laughs) Um, I would say uh, investment banking, and it's changed a lot now, Bianca, from uh, those kind of 90s to to where we are now, of course. Um, But it it is very work hard, play hard. And and particularly in the early days, there there was a, a culture of a lot of drinking after work. And of course, you know, as an HR professional, I can tell you, you will always have employee relations issues with employees <laughs> drinking after work. So, so always something to avoid. But no, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's certainly, um, I think the hours that you work in banking, it's extremely long, often 11 to 12 hours a day, um, sometimes 13, 14. So, so sometimes people have to let off steam and you've got some ways to do it. Drinking's one of them, um, overeating's another, doing other and more nefarious things as well. Um, so I think everyone has to find their way way and and luckily now I'm at Adidas I've, I've found sport is my thing now so and I can I can tell you about that but but definitely I think um the pressure of banking um this uh, there is always this push on excellence and particularly at some of the top investment banks yeah. and it's addictive in one way because if you do perform then there is a, you know you know great rewards and recognition um on the other hand you never see an end to it you never see an end to it it's, it's a constant yearly budget that continues and yearly objectives and and they get more and more and more demanding and and that's how banks um continue to excel at shareholder value added absolutely and you're right sport is a much better uh, habit yeah. <laughs> much better <laughs> habit to have um so the levels of diversity in banking um can be very interesting uh, as a woman of color in recruitment did you feel particularly driven to make a difference or yeah, to stand um, out Absolutely, and um, and it was very obvious um, um, when I when I joined banking in those early days that the majority was coming from one group, just 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 one group only, and uh, and walking into the beautiful old school building um, in the Victorian Bankman, and uh, and you know just being used to always always being in the minority, but just also seeing, wow, okay, um, we, we've got to do better here. And I remember there were a few um, uh, um, uh, people of colour um, in senior positions, um, one or two I, I, I remember talking to. And I remember saying at the beginning of the search, when we start talking about what they're looking for, and uh, and I will say, okay, and so what is the makeup of your team? And, and uh, you know, what, oh, we want someone like this. And I say, but why would you want someone like that? Wouldn't you want someone different to add to the differences rather than the strengths? And so we'd have very interesting conversations. And I would say that JP Morgan was one of the um, the earliest banks I know, obviously because of the, the U.S. connection, uh, because I think the U.S. had uh, been in advance of this for some time, who really thought about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, uh, and I remember there was a campaign uh, that I worked on. Um, I worked for JP Morgan. It was uh, these kind of black and white sepia um, portraits. And uh, and we used um, a couple of diverse um, uh, employees. And I thought it was a really uh, important moment for, for both um, JP Morgan in London, but also, um, I think, banking as a whole. And uh, that, was, that was good. And that was over, you know, 20, 20, 25 years ago. So, well, just to show the possibility, right? Because, yeah. you know, they say you can't be what you can't see. So, to be able to see the diversity at JP Morgan, I'm sure, inspired so many to go into banking. Um, so, you left American banking giant, giant 
JP Morgan for your PN1, PNB Paribas. Why? Yeah. And was there a noticeable difference in the culture? There was a little stopgap in between at a small headhunting firm um, because I, I wanted to kind of um, test the waters back at, at me actually being more commercial and owning my own PL. And it was a, an interesting um, experience. Um, um, and I can definitely go into that. Um, but but I think the, the 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 reason to go back into banking was um, actually, it, it's been a bit of a hallmark of how I've gone through my life. I've never applied for a job, Bianca. People have always called me up and said, listen, I'd love someone like you to work with me. And that's what happened at BNP Paribas, someone I'd worked with at, at JP Morgan had uh, just taken on a big role and said, there's only one HR person that can do this. Um, it, we've got a big challenge and I need you. Mm. And uh, and that's what happened. And, and that's how I moved. So I, I moved very much from a US banking environment background for many years to a, a French um, European background. And the two couldn't be more different. In, in, in a positive way? You, you, you've left us end statement there. <laughs> <laughs> I left you in suspense, right? In suspense. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 positives and 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 uh, and interesting differences as well. I think in an American investment in a banking environment, it's all about being the best, putting whatever resources it it takes to win. Um, failure is not an option. Um, it's all about being the best for our shareholders. It's all about excellence, driving excellence, and raising the bar every single day. And that is that is aspirational. It is amazing to work in that environment. You lift, all, all boats rise, right? So you, you feel like you and you feel inspired. At the same time, it can be incredibly tiring and incredibly judgmental as well. And so I think that is that is something that um, I'm sure people will recognize that, you know, when you have very high standards, it's hard to always reach them and, and to make everyone feel, you know, the same. Included. Yeah, and included. I would say uh, a French investment bank is um, it's, it's it's very different. It's much more. Um, I would say from I think from the engineering, the French engineering mindset. Um, you know, if you come up with a problem, rather than let's throw all the resources, to, it's like let's change direction. We're gonna we're not gonna go this way. We're gonna go this way now, and we'll change. And perhaps we won't achieve that, but we will have achieved something. And so it's a bit more tempered in the approach. Um, it's definitely less showy. Um, and uh, it is more, I would say, about subtle but important deliveries. And uh, and I would say that you know shouting at the top of the houses is 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 not the the strength of the French. They're far more humble in that regard. Um, but some amazing colleagues and uh, and experiences there as well. Okay, fantastic. Well, looking back over your career in the banking sector, which spanned over twenty five years, what was your finest moment, and why did you leave the industry? One of the moments that I really think was important was actually bringing data into my last company, um, uh, BNP Paribas, and uh, and really focusing on uh, demographics as a way to measure progress in our company. And uh, my last role was head of the Americas. Um, and uh, it was uh, obviously in the US, you have a, a lot more um, ability to ask individuals their, their backgrounds, their ethnicity, their sexuality, their orientation. And we were able to do that. And when we were able to start doing that on a voluntary basis, we, we, we started with a very, very um, low percentage of, of completion and we got up to about 90%. So we had really, really accurate data. And, uh, and we were then able to draw inferences about what was happening in the company. And, uh, and we were able to see where inequity was going on. So in terms of promotions or in terms of um, attrition and being able to show to uh, line managers, look, you know, of, of the last uh, year, you've lost 10%. And this has been uh, women, for instance, or this has been um, uh, one um, ethnic minority. So having that ability to use data, not to make decisions, 
but to measure progress is so important and, imper and an imperative. And I think that I feel we moved on a lot, um, uh, and I think the bank did as a whole, um, just being able to access data and use it in a meaningful way. Why did I leave? Um, well, you know, Bianca, uh, after 25 years, um, it's definitely time for a change. And uh, and I had thought about, you know, okay, what is the next step for me? I mean, I, I call myself a decade girl. I was a decade at JP <laughs> Morgan, a decade, over a decade at BMP. Uh, maybe I'm going to be a decade at Adidas. But for me, it was um, what, how can I use all of my skills? Um, and maybe in something that I can... I can really feel uh, from a product perspective, a tangible product, because mm. you, know, you can, I mean, I'm wearing a fantastic pair of trainers right now, um, but you know, you can't really put your arms around a, um, a collateral, collateral debt obligation, but, but certainly, um, uh, you know, um, uh, G, uh, uh, tops, um, um, uh, um, sneakers, um, and all the apparel we do, it's, it's amazing to be able to wear it and also have an opinion on it and, and to believe in the product. And that makes it, um, a very exciting, um, proposition. And when I'd heard the name Adidas, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm interested. And, you know, I got the call and I was like, yeah, 100%. Uh, it's, a, it's a brand I grew up with. Um, of course, you know, the two big brands and, you know, we were sure we both grew up with. Yes, and, yep. uh, yeah. <laughs> and we, we shall not mention the other one. <laughs> we shall not mention the other one. And I have to be honest, I was, I flitted between the two. Um, but, but coming to Adidas and, and uh, being part of the organization, I now see um, just a phenomenal company. And I know we're going yeah. to talk about that in a minute as well. Amazing. So this brings us on to section three, a progressive future. Your final piece of music is Dear Promoter by Voice and Kess 2019. Tell me about that one. I'm not familiar with that song, so you're going to need to give me some more information. Oh, right. Well, you're going to love that song when you hear it, Bianca. So as I mentioned, I'm coming from a Trinidadian background and I went to the Trinidad Carnival. I go to Trinidad Carnival regularly and I went to the one in 2019. And uh, this was, um, for me, it, was, it wasn't the, uh, the, the, the song that wins the overall prize, but it's a song that is, um, it, I guess it's a Trinidadian national anthem, I would say. It's, uh, there, there's a very strong uh, nationalistic um, uh, but, but very positive tone to it. And it is about everything that, that the West Indies has. It is about partying. It is about good spirit. And uh, the song, you know, talks about, you know, no one that can party like us. And, uh, and you know, when Caribbean people are together, it's amazing. And it's got a beautiful beat. It's got a Latin beat as well as a you know, kind of soca beat. And uh, this song was phenomenal. And I definitely recommend you to, to listen to it because it gets you up and you're, you're going to be moving immediately. All right, so I'll put that on my list for this evening. <laughs> so, so you mentioned you were you were headhunted for the role. So what was attractive about Adidas? Firstly, the brand, the history. Um, when you know the history of Adidasla, you know, starting off and uh, creating the best footwear for the best athletes, you know, from, from basically a little house and to where this, this company has got to now, it's a phenomenal story. And, you know, I, I drive into work in the mornings, Bianca. It's usually still very dark. And as I come off the motorway and I, um, or the autobahn, as I should say, and I come up to uh, um, this campus, I see um, this big building I'm in now. It's called Arena. Just, just emerge out of the darkness and I feel this huge sense of pride that I work here and I'm, I'm and I think this is also another reason um you know for the change it is it's hard to be proud of banking in the same way because there is around money it is around uh, the capitalist nature of our world right um and whilst I, I phenomenally love the the philanthropic work we've done in the bank um I wanted to do something a little bit different and I would say that Adidas is 
Um, it's just a phenomenal company. Being able to be proud of, you know, seeing um, an Ivy Park collection or something, or one of our sports marketing partners, um, you know, do an amazing um, performance, sports performance, that makes me proud that I'm linked to it in some way. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, Adidas is... Um, 65,000 people. We are extremely diverse organization. Um, you know, we're based in uh, Germany. That's where our roots are. That's that's where our, our kind of corporate head office is. But uh, we are only 6,000 people of our 65,000. So the world is really big for us. And uh, and uh, having been here a year now, um, getting to understand um, really what has been our history and and and, and now our future, um, our new strategy for the next uh, five years, and also um, our key focuses as a company. I'm totally aligned with it. And um, yeah. and I love it here. I love, I love, I love the culture. I love the passion that people have. I love the intensity. Um, there's a lot of drama. I love that. I absolutely love that. And uh, and I also love the opportunity that this company yeah. has as well. Sure. And I, and I totally get what you're saying there about having that tangible feeling. You can see people wearing it, enjoying it, loving it. Yeah. And, and you can see the new collection, like the new Ivy Park that I saw come out this week. You know, all phenomenal uh, differences and opportunities. So, yes, makes absolutely sense. Um, so when it comes to uh, DEI, Adidas has had its fair share of challenges, some of them well reported. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah. You know, I think it's important that employees are able to speak up and to raise their opinions about organizations. And I think um, I last year was tough for Adidas, uh, 2020 uh, was tough for Adidas. And, uh, and I think across 2021, um, we changed and developed as a company. Um, we listened and we definitely reflected on what was ha- what was happening in our organization. Um, I joined at the very end of 2021 and already a lot of great work had had progressed um, where we were and uh, and also where we've continued to go. Um, so I would say that, um, yes, it was it was a tough summer. Um, I think that um, social injustice um, was raised to the fore in an important way. Um, and it was an important thing that had to happen. Um, and I'm hopeful that um, it will continue um, to be uh, a topic that will improve and, and, and become a topic that we don't have to talk about so much, you know, going forward. But I, I know it's going to take time. And I think all, all companies play a part in ensuring that they're doing the right thing for communities. Because at the end of the day, we represent our communities um, who buy our product, who invest in us. Um, and it's important that we have uh, that balance all the time. Yes, absolutely. And Adidas as a brand has been long associated with black culture. Uh, For example, you know, it's famously promoted Run DMC, more recently Beyonce, Kanye West. Are there plans to have a similar level of diversity in the boardroom? Well, we've started. That's a good thing, Bianca. We've started. And uh, we've also added um, some fantastic people to our supervisory board as well. Um, Jackie Joyner-Kersey just joined uh, last year. So um, so we are, we are making good headway. Um, of course, it's not uh, complete yet. And, uh, and I think it's, it's important that um, over the long term, we have plans and we have ambitions. And, and one of the things we put in place here um, as part of our people strategy um, is to have a, a very clear KPI around gender. We're starting with gender, and it's the one we can measure globally at the moment, and, uh, and ensuring that we can exceed 40% of women in senior positions. Um, at the more junior positions, we're already equal, but it's like, how do we get those senior roles? And, uh, and so that's our ambition, and we, we're tracking that very well on that. Um, we've also launched what we're calling our Data Diversity Dimensions Project, which again, is back to data, 
people are nervous here in Germany because, um, you know, asking people about demographics in a country with some of the history, it, it, it makes people nervous. But it's all on a voluntary basis and we're doing it on a global level. And this will also be able to help us measure progress. And then we can start being able to think about, you know, we, we want to make sure that we are making decisions in a fair and equitable way, but also reflecting uh, the local communities that are in the different regions. So diversity or ethnicity here in Germany is something very different here compared to the US, compared to sure. uh, to our, our Asia pack um, um, teams. And uh, we have to make sure that we are thinking about that in everything we do. Yeah. And I think you're certainly not alone. I think so many companies in the UK and outside of the UK are looking at how they tackle issues of diversity and inclusion. And I think some companies in particular are also looking at drawing their attention to equity. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned equity earlier. What is your definition of equity and why do you think it matters so much? I think it's um, it's crucial. It was one of the, the first things I did, um, put bringing in equity into our diversity and inclusion lens. Um, because equity is the important acknowledgement that society is not equal, and we know that. Yet, what we want to make sure at within, within Adidas, we are not replicating that inequity. So we need to recognize that people have different starting lines. But here, coming into our organization, we want everyone to have a fair chance. So ensuring that we're thinking about that in all of our people processes, our people decision-making committees, and also um, being very vocal about it as well. Um, and you know, we, we, talk, we talked about inequity and some that I saw in my early career. That is something that um, I'm... I'm I've got a sniffer dog nose for. If I if I if I smell it, I go after it, and and uh, my teams do. And I think that is that is so important, and particularly part of the role of HR as well. Yes, no, it is absolutely. Um, it's great that Adidas, I think, have shown a willingness to embrace change. I think that's a really important, pivotal part of, you know, just changing the future of any organisation and culture as a whole. What are your key targets, and what's the kind of time frame we're looking at? So by 2025, we definitely want to have achieved our gender target. Um, we uh, we launched um, and, and we'll be continuing to launch our data di dimension project over the next weeks um, and months. And, uh, and we want to really start over the next years building up that voluntary feedback on what, what is the makeup of our organization. Because if we don't have facts, we can't come to any conclusions. And, uh, and I think that's really important. I think also um, we have to continue um, uh, um, also stretching ourselves and thinking about, you know, always our purpose, because our purpose is through sports, we have the power to change lives. And so any work we do, be it philanthropic, be it um, uh, focusing on our different communities, we always really try to bring it back to our DNA. Um, and someone recently said to me, oh, your, your, your purpose, oh, wow, you, you talk about um, through sport, we have the power to change lives. And I'm, isn't power, you know, really strong word? Shouldn't, should we not come away. And I say, yeah, power, power is a strong word. Um, you know, I think one definition is around um, capability and, uh, and, and, and force. But another one is, is about, is about, uh, uh, um, about enabling. And I think that's what, that's what, how I see power. And, uh, and I think that um, in this organization as, as a whole, we do have the power to change and it's through our products. It's through our marketing. It's through um, uh, the way we, the way we um, uh, handle situations. And I think um, as an organization, we have really um, come on in the last um, um, 18 months. And I think in, in a, in a positive way, which will continue over the next years. Sure. I understand you have three areas of focus, leadership, betterment and performance. Yes. What, what do those mean to you? 
Yeah, well, so leadership for me is really about um, ensuring we have the best leaders who understand that they are setting the cues of this organization. And I'm not just talking about people leaders, Bianca, because, you know, you can lead yourself. You know, that is, that, is, that, is, that is a job in itself. But you can also lead others. You can lead leaders and you can lead organizations, right? And, uh, and it's ensuring that leaders have clear understanding of the values we're expecting, the behaviors, and that they are setting the right tone at the top. So, uh, but we also want them to be inspirational. We want them to be authentic. And so working um, over the next couple of years, we're gonna really focus on how we embed leadership training into every level we have in the company. Um, uh, I also think um, it's important to um, uh, focus on the behaviors uh, specifically, because you need to have that from the top of the house. And, uh, and that will also, um, Oh, on betterment, it is two things. Firstly, ensuring that we are um, giving an equal opportunity for everyone to enhance their skills, to, to own their career, but give them the tools and resources to do that. Things like budget per head for training and, and being able and, and, and giving the offerings. Um, but secondly, it's also getting ready for the future. We need to upskill and reskill um, our staff. You know, technology is having a tremendous force on, on, on all industries, and it, it, it and it will also have one on ours. And, and so how do we fast forward what we're going to need and what we're going to need to look like uh, over the next 10 to 15 years? Um, and then lastly, in um, performance, this is really around how do we motivate individuals to, to think both as an individual, but also how you perform as a team. Also, how do you outperform? How do we recognize those that outperform and do more? I remember my, my, my dad used to say to me very regularly, I say, well, dad, I'm going to get a bonus. And he's like, don't count on your bonus. Never bet on your bonus. Always thinking about it as cream on top. And uh, that was such a, a, a such a West Indian attitude, isn't it? But <laughs> but uh, but you know, uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's something that has always stayed with me. And and I think that for people who really perform well, there should be more than 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 just what everyone else gets. So so finding a way to make sure we can recognise that as well. Another part of um, our, our performance culture would be around feedback. And, you know, we talk about feedback a lot, um, but we, we, we can even strengthen that even more here in this organization. So getting feedback from your peers, um, individuals who work for you, but also your seniors. And I think that is something that helps individuals develop and perform better. <clears throat> yeah, I love what you said there, because I think so many organizations that I work with are now investing in that training, you know, helping individuals to understand their leadership potential. I do a lot around personal branding, entrepreneurship, just giving people ownership over their own career and how they can move forward and grow as an individual. I think that's so important in the future of leadership for any organization. Um, I understand you've already um, uh, introduced some early initiatives. Would you like to share one of the early initiatives that you've introduced? So we post uh, the summer of 2020, um, we, we put all employees through um, a uh, quite an intensive training, um, creating a culture of inclusion. Um, and that was like 30 hours training per individual. So a, a big investment. And, uh, and I would say that was um, education. It was it's the first stage, um, the first, the first, the, the train left the station, right? Um, and that was important. And we're just about to um, uh, start launching um, the, the second part of that journey, um, which will be a little bit more about inclusive leadership and how you can become an inclusive leader. Um, secondly, we also started, a, we, 
2021, we had a global day of inclusion. Um, uh, sorry, in 2020, we had a global day of inclusion. In 2021, we, had, we, we expanded to a week. And that was phenomenal because we had a lot of global and uh, local activities, um, great employee sentiment, fantastic interventions with some of our sports um, uh, um, uh, marketing um, um, individuals. And uh, it, was, it was really, really great and uh, great um, employee um, um, commitment as well. And, and also, um, we, we, we set our, established our diversity, equity and inclusion council. Um, it has the board on it, so board representation, but also um, regional uh, representation as well. So we are working through um, the governance of that and what will be our aims, our strategic aims for this year. Um, and then I think the other thing we, we are doing uh, within my field, within HR, um, is really focusing on our internal processes ensuring that at every juncture, we're thinking about this through a DEI lens. And that's why diversity, equity, inclusion is, is the transversal pillar in our strategy. There's four, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion that glues the other three together, leadership, betterment and performance. Phenomenal. I absolutely love all of that. Um, so if we're looking at the future then, how does the Adidas Executive Board look in five years? Well, um, I think um, a lot can happen in five years, um, but I think that and what I see now is already um, uh, my board colleagues are, are you know, fiercely, um, fiercely um, 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 uh, focusing on how can they in their roles be the most diverse leaders that they can. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we are um, a group of very different individuals. We have a lot of very interesting debates. Um, and, you know, I often have a, an outlier viewpoint. I'm coming from a different background. Um, but uh, we have um, really respectful conversation. And, and there is a lot of um, uh, understanding and reflection afterwards. And we come back and we'll have a little laugh about, uh, you know, some of the conversations. And, and I think that's the way. And you have to create a safe environment where people can, um, you know, ask questions and, and say, well, what's wrong with saying that? Or, and when you question, um, you know, something, you know, feeling like you're in a, a safe environment. So I, I believe that we will change over time. Um, it has to, it takes planning, it takes purpose, and it also takes um, a real will, I would say. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So final question then. We ask all of our podcast guests to make a pledge in the DEI space that they can deliver. What is your pledge, please? Well, I, I've talked about data a lot, and I would say that I want data to be not only the foundation, I want it to be the, the fueling fire that will continue helping us, um, making sure that we, we are the most um, um, diverse, um, inclusive and equitable company. That, that for me, is really important. Um, and then I think, secondly, um, it would be us, uh, you know, we are we are a sport, and we, we have this huge um, a plaque out there saying, we are sport, and we believe that. <laughs> but I think I love the sporting industry. Um, in all its facets to in, embrace um, DEI more. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, we saw some stories um, already last year um, that have been interesting to, to, to see how they develop and, uh, and and ensuring that, you know, we can, we can also have sport becoming the most inclusive um, activity as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Sadly, that's all we have time for, but I could literally sit and chat with you all day, <laughs> even if it was just about music, but your career is phenomenal. So thank you so much for joining me today, for opening up about your fascinating life and career, your remarkable relationships, your future aspirations, and all that you're doing at Adidas. Honestly, it has been phenomenal. I know this episode will stay with all of us for a very long time. So thank you again, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bianca. 
please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader, or famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review, and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fair society, please email us on podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye.